are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Our passage this morning is from Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take for us and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as I have such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command to you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you take a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself a god of cast metal. You shall keep the feasts of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. 
all that, all that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem, it, it shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year you sh all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with any leaven, with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its own mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the, the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that, he, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all of the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out, he told the people of Israel that what he was commanded, and the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this account uh, of your people. We thank you for this account of, of who you are, Lord. Lord, we pray this morning that um, you, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through Rob that you would ultimately change us, Lord, that you would change Rob, that you would change all of us here and all of us that are listening to this, Lord. We love you and we thank you for what you are going to do today. Lord, we thank you for your word, who is Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you first think about God? It's been said before that when we think about God, the first thing that pops into our mind is the most important thing about us. So what do you think of first when you think of God? Let me put it a, a different way. What do you 
Think about God's demeanor, his posture towards you when you obey. What do you think of it when you disobey, when you're riddled with, with guilt, when you know you've screwed up royally and you feel as if you are tarred and feathered in your own shame and your own filth? What do you think of first when you think of God? I wonder what Moses thought of God as he ascends the mountain yet again. When he pleads with God not to depart from Israel in chapter 33, verse 12, but to come with them. And the Lord listens. He says, I will not depart from you. I will go with you into the land. Or when Moses pleads for God to show him his glory. And the Lord says, I will show you my goodness. And here in Exodus 34, that conversation is continuing between God and Moses. Now God is responding to how he will view Israel and how he will respond to Israel's waywardness. What do you think of when you first think of God? I think God wants to answer that question. I think God wants to tell you what to think of him from Exodus 34. The Lord is going to reveal first his character that is like no other. Second, he's going to reveal commands that serve as a reminder. And as a result of his character and his commands, there's going to be a changed, third point, a change that is produced by another. So what does Moses think when he first thinks about God? I think that led him back up the mountain. He knew who he was going to encounter when he got to the top. And as he beheld this God, he became like him. For what Moses beheld is what he became like. He became like the character of the God he beheld. He became like the commands, and now he is changed. And that's my prayer for us today. That as we behold the glory of God, we would become more like him. So let's dive in. First point, we find a character that is like no other. Now, I, I don't know if you noticed this as you read, but Moses is now invited up for round two of 40 days and 40 nights at the top of a mountain. We see that in verses 27 to 28. But this time, there's no food. There's no water. And in verse 4 of chapter 34, we see Moses following every word of God. He rose in the morning, like God said. He cut two stones like God said, and he met with the Lord, like God said. 
Then God says in verses six and seven, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This passage, apart from the revelation of the Son of Man in Christ Jesus, is the Mount Everest of divine revelation. This is the text that all of the prophets point back to, from Jeremiah to Nehemiah to the psalmist to Isaiah to Joel to Jonah. Like preachers today quote Tim Keller, all prophets quote Moses from Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7. And what does it show us about God's character? Not what we'd expect. Most of us, when we think about God, we think about his anger abounding. We think about his wrath that is pent up, judgment that is spring-loaded. When we think of his mercy, we believe it to be slow. His grace is like molasses. That's not what the text says. His anger is slow. His anger won't clear the guilty, but his anger is also momentary. Meaning he's not like our unhealthy familial relationships that sweep sin under a rug and then surprise three years later they bring it up and pull that rug out right from underneath us. Because when God says he will visit the iniquity of the third to the fourth generation, he's simply saying that the sins that the older generations taught the younger generations, they won't go unnoticed. Just because their fathers got punished doesn't mean that they're off the hook for the same sins. He will visit those because he's a just God. He'll visit the iniquity of those who do not come to him, who do not turn back to him. But what is in store for those who turn? What is in store for those who come to behold their God? It's not slow love. It's abounding, steady, and ready love. That at the moment you approach God, damnation is not what's pent up for you. What's ready for you is a dam ready to be released of a bottomless reservoir of God's mercy and God's grace ready to erupt the moment you turn. God doesn't just exist as a God who is merciful and who is loving and who is grace gracious. No, he abounds, which means his love overflows towards us. His grace overflows towards you at the very moment you come to him. How do, how do we know this? 
where he talks about his judgment to a third and fourth generation. Yes, our sins will be caught and taught to a generation after us and to a generation after them. But God's goodness, his grace, will be passed down in a way that swallows up all of our generational sins because his love in the Hebrew here literally extends to never-ending generations, meaning his mercy travels down thousands upon thousands of generations, eclipsing the third and fourth. Dane Ortland, in a book that he wrote called Gentle and Lowly about the heart of Christ, says this about Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. It's God's own way of saying, there is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. I want you to think about how many your sins are. Count them up. His mercy's more. His grace far eclipses your sins. His love is eager to be poured out on you. And how does Moses respond? How should we respond in, in verse 9? It's worship and plea for more mercy, not just for his individual sin, but for the corporate sin of many. And why does he do this? Because God's character is like no other. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, ready to extend mercy to undeserved sinners like me and you. This is a character like no other. But he also gives commands that serve as a reminder, point two. And before we look at these commands, we, we have to remember where these commands come from. Look at verse 10 with me. And he said, that is God saying, this is Yahweh speaking, behold, which behold just simply means, hey, pay attention here. I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels. Such has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Don't, don't miss this. God's commands flow from his commitment to them. It's reestablishing and reordering and restoring what was broken, not by him, but by them. The covenant. It's a remarriage of sorts. See, even when Israel changed their mind about God, God's mind was never changed about his commitment to them. God is changelessly faithful to his commitment to us. When we change, God's faithful to never change. When we fail to keep our commitment to this new covenant in Christ, God never fails in his commitment to you 
or to me, even though they broke the covenant. God did not continue to break, but instead he restored the bond that they broke. And he promises he will continue to do the thing that he always proclaimed and promised he would do. Drive out their enemies. Bring them into the promised land. And these commands are a reminder that God is a jealous God. In fact, in verse 14, if you keep your Bibles open, the Lord's name is jealous. Now, now what comes to mind when you think of the word jealousy? Mostly, it's not the, the positive connotations, it's the negative ones. Right? It's the petty, needy, high school, sophomoric jealousy. But, but what about the jealous love that a wife desires from her husband? She only wants his intimate thoughts, his intimate touches, his intimate tender words to be for her and her alone, and no other woman. That is biblical, godly, and godlike jealousy. That's a jealousy that we see here in God that's rooted in deep concern for the relationship and for the other. God has a jealous commitment to his glory, to his honor, and to his fame among the nation of Israel and among the nations. Why? Because he knows that his glory is the best thing for his people. But he's also deeply committed to and jealous for his bride, Israel's undivided attention. He's jealous for her unwavering commitment. He's jealous for her sanctification, and that's why he reminds her of his loving commands that will grow her, protect her, and guide her. All these commands that you see here in Exodus 34 from verse 11 onward is just a recapitulation. It's a recap of chapter 23. Look what I have up on the screen for you. Eliminating the nations throws back to chapter 23, verse 21. Making no covenant with them is a recap of verse 32 in chapter 23. Luring to serve other gods in marriage is a recap of verse 33. The festival of the flatbread, we see that in 15 of chapter 23. Don't show up empty-handed on the seventh day, no work. The pilgrimage festival, the weeks, harvest, and the ingathering. Males to appear before God three times a year, no bread with leaven, and to leave nothing over, and to bring the choice first yields to God's house, and a kid goat in its mother's milk. These are all a recap of what we've already seen in the initial book of the covenant in chapter 23. These commands are a reminder, a reminder for them not just to recap the Book of the Covenant, but as one of my sermon team prep members, Matt Peffer, reminded me this week, these are all vertical commands. These are not horizontal. This is not how they relate to one another. This is how they relate to God. Why? It's because these are the commands they broke when they created the golden calf. 
They broke the vertical commands. Have no other gods before me. Shall not make an idol for yourself. So God is graciously reminding them of the covenant commitment in the commands. And that's why we see in verse 28b of chapter 34, Moses rewriting the Ten Commandments. We read, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. He reminded them that he doesn't change and neither does his word. What did the Lord do when his law was broken? When his character was denigrated, when his people were shown to be unable, unfit, and unwilling, he reiterates who he is. He reiterates his holiness and reminded his forgetful people of what his word says. Oh, the patience of God. He adjusted neither his holy character nor his holy commands to suit the contrarian nature of us. Yeah, we, his people, we change. We fluctuate between our commitment to him and commitment to other little g-gods. But hear this. God's not changing his commands and he's not changing his commitment to you. And like God always does, his commitment, his covenant comes before the commands. The restoration of the covenant comes before the reminder of the commands. It's mercy first, then mandates. We can't get this reversed. We don't keep the mandates in order to receive mercy. We don't keep the commands in order for him to remain committed to us. No, God is faithfully committed to us out of his faithful character even when we fail to keep his commands. It's based on his character that is rich in mercy. He ain't poor in mercy. He's rich in grace, ready to give it out as a free gift. And he's committed to love you to the end when you come to behold him. This is the character of a God that is like no other. These are commands that serve as a reminder. And three, comes a change that's provided and produced by another. Now, have you guys ever been in a situation where everybody else in the room was completely aware of something and you were oblivious. Yeah, yeah welcome to my world. It's like all, all the time for me. So much so that, that my wife Lauren has some little tricks to help make me aware. Like when I have food in my teeth, right? She has this number system where when she says a number, Rob, twos, I know exactly which two teeth she's talking about. And I can go and pick it with my tongue without anybody being aware of it. She's aware. I'm not. This is the predicament Moses finds himself in when he comes off the mountain the second time. We read in verse 29, he's carrying down these two tablets. And in these two tablets, on one is the entirety of the Ten Commandments. It's the Lord's copy of the Ten Commandments. 
And on the other is the entirety of the Ten Commandments again. It's the people's copy. And as he's carrying down these two tablets, I can see him coming down, one and one, underneath one arm, one underneath another. He's completely unaware to what everyone else is aware of. His face is shining like the noonday sun. The people are wigging out. They're freaking out at what they see. They're fearing for their lives. Now, this is a stark juxtaposition to the last time he had 40 days and 40 nights up on the mount with the Lord. Last time he came down, he was angry and furious, and he broke the tablets. That's why we needed round two. But this time, he radiates God's glory and God's goodness, and he's completely unaware. In fact, this word for shine in the Hebrew language sounds just like the word for horn. And this should pique our imagination a little bit. Why does this sound like the word horn? Remember, the people at the bottom of the mountain wanted something to represent God. They wanted something to represent a leader from God. And so what did they form? A golden bull with horns. But now we have a true and better representation of God, an image bearer who shines forth. It also sounds like the word horn, shines forth God's glory because he beheld God's glory. And now he became like the goodness and glory of God. In fact, if you keep reading in chapter 34 and verse 34, what does Moses keep doing? He can't get enough of the Lord. He keeps meeting with the Lord. Every time he went in, he came out becoming like the person he beheld, transformed by the goodness of God, transformed by the glory of God. And he came out from meeting with God. He put a veil over his face so as to shield the people from the radiance of God's glory. How was Moses changed? How has anybody changed? Well, what you behold is what you will become like. Listen, if you want to become a horrible listener, be quick to speak, slow to listen, watch the presidential debates. Behold the reruns on YouTube. You want to become more discontent? Behold your social media feed for endless hours a day. However, if you want to become more like the God who created you, if you want to show off his goodness and his glory and his grace to everyone around you, behold your God. Behold your God in Christ Jesus, who is the full radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And look what will happen if we behold Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians for a second time in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 3, he says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would have put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds, that's the Israel's minds, were hardened. For even to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. 
Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do do you see what Paul's saying in this passage? We have one job. Turn to the Lord. The glory of the Lord has another job to transform. Our job is to turn to God. God's job is to transform us, to become more like God. Our role is not to change ourselves. Our role is to turn to the one who never changes. And when we behold him, we'll be changed, transformed into his glory. And who is this? It is Christ Jesus. We don't become ones who behold the law. No, we don't behold the law that we never measure up to. We behold the law giver and the fulfiller of that law, Christ Jesus, who measures up for us on our behalf. And when we behold Christ, he promises by his spirit to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Behold Christ. But this beholding doesn't happen as a quick fix. Y'all remember prom? Remember prom back in the day? Now, the high schoolers, if you're watching right now, I, I don't know if y'all still do this, but the, the ladies in high school would always go and get this spray tan the week before prom. And they would come into class on Monday morning before prom with this Dorito orange tint to their skin. What do they want? They wanted instant transformation. They wanted in a bottle what the sun was meant to do over weeks. And what was in that bottle faded because it was fake. This glory and goodness Moses experienced was not a drive-through, spray-tan experience that is there one day and gone the next as it washes away down the shower drain. It was 40 days and more of being in the presence of God. It was ongoing meetings with God. And when Moses approached this God, when he met with God, there was no fear. There was no shame. Why is that? Well, he knew who he was meeting with. He knew his first thoughts about God when he went to go meet with God. Do you? What do you think of first when you think about God. When you approach God in his word or through prayer, or when you think about not approaching God in his word or in prayer, do do you realize who you have the opportunity to meet with? See, most of you are like me. 
Most of the time, we often find ourselves riddled with fear. With fear to approach God because we're just tarnished in our shame and our guilt. That if we were to approach God and sit in his presence, all he'll see is our present sinfulness. We fear that we actually won't be changed in that moment, but instead we'll be scorched by the anger and the fury of his wrath if we approach him. I mean, this is why we settle for the Instagram spray tan devotionals instead of deep presence in prayer and in the word with God so that he might transform us by his spirit. And it's because our minds are settled because of our flesh to focus in on one aspect of God's character. He's not going to clear the guilty. That he is holy and he will condemn. And we forget the words that cast a shadow over the judgment. He will visit up to the third and fourth generation. But his mercy extends to thousands of generations. Do you see the stark contrast? And it's true, he will not clear the guilty. I mean, this is why the Israelites had to set up and tear down the tent of meeting. For every day they had to sacrifice a lamb to take their guilt, to take their punishment. But how much more? We who are on the other side of the empty tomb, do we now have freedom, the Apostle Paul says. We have freedom to access this glory. We have freedom to access this grace. We have freedom to access God's goodness. We get to go, the Apostle Paul says, with unveiled faces. Why? It's because God in Christ veiled himself in humanity. The Apostle John tells us that, that Christ is the Word, and the Word veiled himself in flesh, and we have beheld his glory, glory from the Son, from the Father, who is full of grace and he is full of truth, that Jesus is the full radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he is upholding the universe by the Word of his power. And this Jesus has not come to condemn you, the Apostle John says. He has not come to consume you with his fury or his holy glory. No, Jesus has come to show you what God showed Moses when Moses asked God to reveal his glory. Do you know what God told Moses in chapter 33 of Exodus? I will show you my goodness. Is that what you think of when you think of God's glory? Are you moved to think about his goodness? Do you know what God has come to show us in Christ Jesus? His glory revealed on the cross and its goodness for us because it was hell for Jesus. It was hell for Jesus one Friday, generations ago. You see, the New Testament authors remind us 
that these commands were tutors meant to show us that we do not measure up, that we cannot keep the law. And cursed is anyone who doesn't keep this law. But blessed are those who walk in God's commands. And do you know that Jesus walked perfectly in God's commands, that for 40 days and 40 nights he was tempted and tried like you and me, yet he was without sin. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the temptations you have, and yet he was without sin. And even though he obeyed every command, he was cursed so that we can be blessed. He was cursed so that all of your guilt can be cleared. Not some of your guilt, all of your guilt. All of your guilt is done away with. Not just some of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, so none of it was left for us. Only goodness is left for us. Only grace is left for us. Only mercy is left for us. Glorious riches of God's mercy. Glorious riches of God's steadfast love in Christ Jesus. And love that extends to epochs of generations. So the invitation now is to turn, to turn, to come and behold this glorious and gracious God. I, I read somewhere this, this last week that God's glorious grace, it will make you acknowledge that you can't earn God's favor, but also remove the fear of not measuring up to his standards. God's glorious grace will confront you with the fact that you're much less than you thought you were, even as assures you that you are even more than you ever imagined, a child of God, loved and accepted. God's glorious grace will put you in your place without ever putting you down. God's glorious grace will convince you of your unworthiness without ever making you feel unloved. In God's grace, it will expose your present sinfulness, but it will also cover the sinfulness with the blood of Christ. In God's glorious grace, it leaves you less impressed with yourself and more impressed with the glory of God. This is what I love about Moses coming down off that mountain. He was completely unaware of himself because he was transfixed with God's glory. And when he was transfixed and changed by the glory of God, his concern was for his neighbor. His concern was for others. Focus was not on himself. His focus was on loving God and loving others. And isn't this what the townspeople said of the disciples of Jesus in Acts 6-4? They can tell that they spent time with Jesus. Oh, may that be true of us, that when people see us, they know that we have spent time beholding Jesus because they see us becoming like Jesus. So I invite you to come, to turn to the Lord. Come, come, and behold this wondrous mystery we sing. 
Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasure, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. Oh, but no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of our deliverance. How unwavering is our hope. Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. We will become like what we behold. What a foretaste of our deliverance. What do you think of when you first think of God? Oh, I pray that it's his glorious mercy, his glorious grace, his glorious steady and ready love, ready to be poured out on you, that it transforms you and frees you. And as you behold him, you become more like him. When you behold his mercy, you'll become more merciful. When you behold his grace, you'll be marked by graciousness. When you behold his love, you will become more loving. When you behold his glory, you'll become more like his glorious son, Christ, who promises to transform you by his spirit, that same spirit that raised him from the dead. So come, come behold your God so that you might be transformed into the image of your God who is Christ. Oh, may this be true by the Spirit. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are not like what we often think you are. 